pay my word in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text this morning is from Mark chapter 14, Mark 14, and we'll be reading beginning with verse 3 down through verse 9, that uh, exquisitely beautiful and painfully convicting text that's the basis of that beautiful offertory, which I confess I'd never heard before, but uh, my it captures the, the message of this text. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. This story 
appears clearly in three of the Gospels, Mark and Matthew and John. And arguably, some believe it's also uh, the, the beautiful picture in Luke's Gospel of the woman who broke an alabaster jar and poured it over his feet in the home of a Pharisee. That's a beautiful text in itself. I think it's a different time. Be that as it may, it doesn't matter. This text is so rich. And we know from John's gospel, John chapter 12, that the woman was actually Mary. Not Mary Magdalene, uh, but rather Mary, the sister of Martha and sister of Lazarus. So that's who this woman was who did this incredible act. And we know that it wasn't just the people who were present because the other gospel writers tell us it was the disciples who went after her for it. And when we turn to Jesus, remember that Jesus came to reveal the Father. And so when we see his response, we are seeing the response of the living God to Mary. So what I'd like us to do to prepare for the table this morning is simply to ask four questions of this text. The first is, what did this gift mean to Mary? The second is, what did it mean to the disciples? The third is, what did it mean to Jesus? And then, obviously, the fourth that we must always ask is, what should this mean to me? What lesson ought I to be taking from this text? So that's the path going forward for us. The first, what did the gift mean to Mary? It's easy to read this from a a different culture as though these were people living in our culture. As uh, uh, was said by John Walton of Wheaton College, uh, uh, an Old Testament writer who's written on the lost world of the Bible, the lost world of Genesis 1, the, all the lost world series. He said, we always need to remember that while by God's grace, the Bible was written for us as inspired of the Spirit, nonetheless, no part of the Bible was written to us. No one writing, it was written by over 40 writers over a period of some 1,500 years. In one sense, it's a collection of inspired books with one narrative thread. But no writer of the scripture sat down and thought, 2022 in Annapolis, I wonder what they need to hear. And so they are writing in different languages and profoundly different cultures. Now, why do I make that obvious point? because we will not understand Mary's gift unless we think for a moment about Mary's setting. First of all, Mary was a woman in a man's world. The gospel had not yet had centuries and millennia to work its way out and transform the way that people thought about one another. Apart from the gospel, Thomas Jefferson, who was no great believer, a deist, but nonetheless, he never would have come up with the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator. That, That is all 
the language of the Bible, people created in God's own image and therefore endowed. Now, why do I say that? Because Mary grew up in two cultures. One was the Greco-Roman culture of the Roman Empire. And we, we hear about the transformation of the world through Roman law, but Roman law only applied to male Roman citizens, only to them. That's why Paul could not be crucified. He was taken out and had his head cut off because he was a Roman citizen and you couldn't crucify a citizen of Rome. But it didn't apply to non-citizens and it never applied to women. No woman was a citizen of Rome. She was owned by her husband. And the law of Rome was called patria potestas. Patria, father, potestas, potentate. The father was potentate in his home and if your wife or your children displeased you, you could put them to death. They had no recourse. They belonged to you. You say, but this was Israel. All right, it wasn't as bad, but don't ever forget that Moses gave an Israelite man the right to divorce his wife for any reason, provided he gave her a certificate of divorce. But an Israelite woman could divorce her husband for no reason. She had no recourse because she was essentially, she went from her father's or her brother's home to be under the headship of another man. And for Mary, her only hope to ever get out from Martha's thumb was to marry and have her own home. That was her future. She would never be respected in that culture unless she was married and had children. That's why we read these stories throughout the Old Testament uh, of the, and in the New with uh, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth of the agony of a childless woman because that was what she was expected to bring to the world and she was not valued unless she was married and had children. Now, why do I say all that? What was Mary doing with a gift of this incredible uh, value? If you've been to Israel and have gone to Bethany, they even have the home there that tradition says was their home that's been excavated. It is a small place. It's a small village. It did not have wealth. These were not wealthy people. We also know that they were not a wealthy family because in that probably most famous story of Mary and Martha, you'll recall that Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach while Martha's in the kitchen working away and she says finally, Master, why are you letting her sit in there and leaving me alone to do all the work? If they'd had any money at all, they would have had servants helping. So this was not a wealthy family, but this gift of Mary's was worth more than 300 denarii. What does that mean? A denarius, singular, was one day's wage. And if you took off all 52 Sabbath days, you were left with 300 days of the year. This was worth more than a year's salary. Now try to think about anything in your home besides your home itself that you have that is worth more than a year's salary. I confess, I don't, I don't, have, I don't own anything that, except my house that's uh, worth more than a year's salary. That was the worth of this. Why did she have it? Because this was her dowry. This was her one chance to marry. 
People back then didn't marry romantically out of love. It was an arrangement between families to bring wealth and, and honor to the family. And for a woman to marry, well, it didn't matter how beautiful she was, if she wanted to make a good marriage, she had to have something of value to bring to her prospective husband's home. In other words, Mary's gift was her whole future. All of her hopes, all of her dreams, all that she dreamed of being from the time she was a child was all there in that alabaster container. And all the way up to Jerusalem, Jesus had been telling the guys with him, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to my enemies, I'm going to be crucified. And all the while they were arguing over which one of them was going to be greatest when they got to Jerusalem because they were determined that there'd be no cross, that he was going to reestablish the throne of David. And they were jockeying for positions as chancellor of the exchequer and prime minister. You know, they thought this was their big moment. They'd seen him through the hard times and now it was coming and they were going to get to rule and reign with Jesus. That's why, as we mentioned a Sunday or two ago, James and John actually got their mother to go to Jesus and ask for the seats of honor at his right and left hand. And he said, you have no clue what you're asking. So Mary was the only one of the whole band of apostles who had been listening and believing and understanding what Jesus said and how her heart must have broken as she looked around and saw the men whom he had called to stand with him and he poured his life and they're all arguing over who's gonna be greatest and she sees him sitting there. Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. He was right on the outskirts. He was ready to go over the Mount of Olives and into the city. He was ready to give himself for us and Mary was the only one who got it. And so while all the people were talking and arguing and laughing and joking, Mary quietly went back to her closet and took down her life, her future. I know myself, I know myself well enough to know that if I'd been the one disciple listening, I probably would have said, Jesus, it sounds like things are gonna get really tough when you get into Jerusalem. And if you need a really good lawyer, I've got something back here of value that you can borrow against. <laughs> or maybe if I were really convicted, I would have gone back and carefully unsealed it and very quickly measured out a tenth and then quickly sealed it, maybe use a, a wine, get, get the thing out, get the stuff out so I don't lose any, cork it back up. Here, let me pour this over your head. But Mary took her future and in one irrevocable act broke it, poured it over Jesus. And for a moment, the fragrance would have just filled the room. But in a moment or two, someone would open a door or a window and and it would begin to waft away on the breeze and, 
Besides old factory shutdown, you can only smell something like that for a few minutes and you're used to it. And within a few minutes, it's, it's gone. Mary was entrusting the rest of her life to Jesus. You're going to your death, then in some sense, I'm going with you. What did it mean to the disciples, to all the guys who are arguing over which one will be greatest? What a waste. Can you believe it? Leave it to a woman. Why didn't she consult with us? We could have told her how she could sell that and invest it and, you know, live off the principal, only spend the, I mean, this is an act of utter folly. The implication, of course, is that some things are just too valuable to give to Jesus. And I think all of us who by grace have known him and called ourselves his children have nonetheless come to many points in our lives where we've just said, not that, I'm not ready. I can't, I just, you can have all of this, but please, not this alabaster. This is, this is my hopes, this, here are my dreams. Don't ask for that. And I, I must say that in 45 years, as a pastor, and then growing up in a pastor's family, I saw it too, that over and again, some of the people who most supported mission work, whether it was in the inner city among the poor or overseas, when their own child suddenly stepped forward would say, no, 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 yeah, you're gonna work with us and we're gonna fund people who go do this, but you know, you're, you're too gifted to go down there. I actually had an evangelical leader who was, I won't, don't wanna to give too many, but his, he was a leader in one of the churches that I served and was on the boards of the top schools and, okay, I won't give it a while. Bottom line is he had a number of sons. His older sons, and, and they were huge supporters of mission. I mean, everybody knew them, wanted them on their boards because they gave away millions of dollars every year. And his older sons followed in his footsteps, were doing the same kind of work and doing it. But he came to see me and said, you know, this other son is uh, not the sharpest tool in the shed. And uh, I'm really trying to figure out how to advise him. Do you think mission work would be good for him? I just said, brother, you know, was it good enough for Jesus? What is too valuable to you or who is too valuable? People supporting mission whose kids say, we're gonna go to backside of the world to this difficult, dangerous place where they don't have good healthcare or anything else. And the parents who've been celebrating missionaries as heroes say, you can't take my grandchildren that far away. What or whom is too precious to you and me to just give Jesus? What did it mean to Jesus? And again, when Jesus speaks, he's telling us what God thought about all this. He said, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing for me. 
The poor you'll always have. Of course, John tells us that it was the main one driving this was Judas, not because he cared about the poor, but he kept the purse and wanted more in the purse. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor and you're always able to care for them. But this is a moment in the history of the world. The whole history of humanity and of the cosmos itself is getting ready to turn on this hinge. She's the only one who knows. She is anointing me for what I'm about to face. She has done something beautiful for me. And then I love that he followed it by saying, she did what she could. The Lord never asks us for what we don't have or what we aren't. He never says, if only you were more than I could use you. If only you had more. All he says is, I love you. Follow me. Give me who you are. Give me what you are. She did what she could. So what should it mean for you and for me? I think we find that in the final verse where Jesus says, wherever the gospel goes in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. In remembrance of her. What does that remind you of? Jesus only left two memorials. One was what we're about to celebrate, where he said, do this in remembrance of me. And when he said of Mary, tell this in remembrance of her. Why these two things? For this reason, I believe. Here we have depicted enacted again a memory, but more than a memory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that when we drink and eat, we're actually participating in some spiritual sense in the sacrifice of Christ as we receive this by faith. But this is the supreme demonstration within the church and memorial celebrating the grace of God by which we are saved. But grace in a, in a child of God is received through faith. What is real faith like? That's what 1 John was all about. Here we have it pictured. Jesus says, I want you to remember God's grace when you eat this meal. And I want you to remember the kind of faith in me that I'm looking for, that delights me. You wanna know what that looks like? Tell the story of Mary again, because that's where it is. That's what a true discipleship looks like. The day is going to come when every one of us here is going to stand before the Lord. And in that day, he's just going to say, something beautiful for me or what a waste, what a tragic waste, why this waste? May God in his mercy and grace make you and make me something beautiful for Jesus. The men you've seen getting up and going out are going out to prepare to come and serve us this meal.
If you have been baptized into the body of Christ and are truly trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then I invite you to come. This isn't a table that belongs to this church or to our particular denominational connection. This is for God's children. And so I invite you to come and take and eat and remember how much the Lord loves you. We'll have two sets of elders here and two sets of elders there and the deacons will come and dismiss you. And and what we'd ask you to do is to take a piece of bread. If you need gluten-free, it's on the table. Otherwise, you'll be served at the sides. But take it and don't yet eat, don't yet drink. Go back to your seat and when all have been served, we're just going to stop the music, we're going to stop everything and just be quiet. And just take a few moments to reflect on Mary's gift and on Christ's gift and on what he may be calling us to be and to do. And then together, we will taste and see how much the Lord loves us.